Well, many thanks for coming tonight. We appreciate your presence. I'd like to read three verses with you in the New Testament, or three brief passages. And the first one is in 1 Peter chapter 2, where we read in the Bible reading on Lord's Day morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. For what glory is it if... When ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently. But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. I'd like you to notice that expression that is used in verse 21. Leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. You notice, we did no sin. So it is certainly not a matter of us uh, being able to follow that step. But this is a most important statement, leaving us an example. Now 1 Thessalonians 5, if you will, Chapter 1, if you please, of of 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 1, verse 6. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word. That's a a very important uh, statement, having received the word, because that really is the spoken word. That is the preached word. That is the public declaration of the gospel. He became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word, the preached word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. There is a, a statement in verse 14 of the next chapter that I think you should read while you have your Bible open there. For ye, brethren, became followers, imitators of the churches of God which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. Now, another brief reading in Romans chapter 6. Verse 17, we're breaking into a long uh, discourse here, but uh, I just want to read this 17th verse. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of uh, 
ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, or perhaps much more accurately, into which ye were delivered. The question I am going to try to answer tonight is, do we follow a person or a pattern? Some questions are really not correct. There are questions that can convey something wrong in the very asking. And that's rather unusual for me to say that because I encourage people to ask questions. I, I have many times said that I do not believe, and forgive the English, I do not believe there is such a thing as a dumb question. I think every question is worthy of serious consideration and worthy of answering. And we make it our policy to, to do our best to answer every question that is asked and to encourage questions to be answered. But sometimes when a question is asked, it can contain error in the very question. This is a question that we have been asked. Do we follow a person or a pattern? And what is the error in the question? Because a person and a pattern is not an either-or situation. Because following a person is following a pattern. Some time ago in a meeting, a young man made the statement afterward, not at the meeting, while well, the meeting was in progress, but afterward, he made the statement that we are hearing far too much about the pattern and not enough about the person. And such a thing is good if it makes us think, because it certainly made me think, and what I have to say tonight is really an answer to that statement. Too much about the pattern, and not enough about the person. I trust that God will warm our hearts tonight with the contemplation of the blessed person of our Lord Jesus. There are many parents here, and we have all been children in the homes of our parents, undoubtedly, there may be exceptions to that. Perhaps all of us are able to look back on being a child in a home where we had a mother and father who cared for us and sought to teach us and train us. How do parents train their children? How does a Christian parent, for instance, which is more vital to our interest now, how does a Christian parent train her children or his children? Well, there are three ways that it is done. We're all aware of them, but I'll only remind you of them by putting them in this order. We teach our children by principles. We teach our children by precepts. And we teach our children by power. I think you'll agree with that when we look at it like this. Have you heard a mother, perhaps with a little child at her feet, maybe the child almost too young for some of us to think that the child understands. Have you heard the mother teaching the child? Oh, I've heard it many times and it has delighted my heart to hear that mother pour into the child divine principles, divine truths, Truths from the Word of God. Not just quoting Scripture, but truths from the Scripture. 
standards of righteousness and morality and truth and goodness. Oh, I tell you, a mother has a great job to do. Don't, don't ever think that's a second great job. And don't ever think that, that there's anything inferior about it. It is one of the most important things a person can ever do. And most of us perhaps are past the age when we have little children. Oh, what a privilege it is for a mother and a father as well to give to their little children divine principles of righteousness. Because those divine principles of righteousness will mark that child all its days. None of us have ever gotten away from those principles that were poured into us at our mother's knee. Thank God for that. In fact, I do believe that even when children are wayward, even when they're rebellious, those principles that have been put into the child in early days will bear fruit. And they do have their effect, even though it's after many days. But after the mother or the father has given to the child principles of righteousness, principles of goodness, principles of, of truth, sometimes they have to make application of those principles by precepts. And so there are times when the parent must say to the child, you cannot do this or do not do that, and that's a precept. Or it might be a positive command that they must do this or must do that. But if those two things are evident in the home and that's all, that is not enough. It isn't enough to give children principles and to give them precepts unless they have a pattern to follow. I know this is something that is is kind of wearing thin in our modern age, and yet I hear many, many people talking about it again. Children need role models. Children need examples. Children need a pattern. Some of the role models they have today are, are anything but right for them. Anything but. In fact, some of the role models that children have look about their wickedness, boast themselves in their evil. And that's a desperate pattern to give to a child. But a child must have a right pattern. And so what the parent teaches the child by principle and commands by precept, if that is lived as a pattern before the child, then you have proper instruction in the fear of the Lord. You have a child brought up in the admonition of the Lord. That's the language that Paul uses. So, that's a blessed thing. God teaches us just the same, dear believer. God teaches us by those three principles, those three ways. First of all, God does give us his truth. He gives us principles of righteousness. He gives us his own truth in his word and language that the Spirit of God applies to our hearts. And God does give us precepts. God gives us commandments. And although you may hear people saying to the contrary that there are no commandments for believers today, don't you believe that? I was in a meeting years ago and a dear man gave an address on the fact that we have no commandments today. I knew what he meant, and I, I, I think he meant right. I would certainly give him credit for being most sincere 
he was trying to point out that we are not under a legal system, that we are not under law. And the man in Romans 7 tried to, to gain sanctification. He tried to be set apart for God by a legal system, and it so miserably failed that you hear him cry, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? So, sanctification, being set apart for God, does not come about through a legal system, and I think that's what the man had in mind. But he went so far as to say, we have no commandments today. I had to speak after him. I debated it many times over, and I was much younger then. I'm not sure that I would do now what I did then. But after he had spoken, I got up and I said, I appreciate what our brother has said. I want to read three scriptures with you. And I read, if any man love me, he will keep my commandments. And I read, by this we know that we are the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. And I read, if any man among you seemeth to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. And all three of those apply to believers today. So don't, don't say there are no commandments. The difference is that we are not under a legal system of fear, but we are under a blessed compulsion of love. That it is devotion to the Lord Jesus that makes us glad and willing to hear his voice and to follow him and obey his word. The man I was saved to, Mr. Sam McEwen, he used to say that all God expects of a Christian to be written on your thumbnail. And he would carry that along if you... Some of the older Christians, if they knew Mr. Sam McEwen, uh, they would remember how well he could do this. He would carry that along for a long time until everybody was on the edge of their seat, wondering what this was that would be written on the thumbnail. And then he, he would say, all that you need written on your thumbnail is obedience. That may not be very glamorous to the modern mind, but that's God's, that's God's principle. The principle of obedience. Now let me get back to my three things, if you will. Precepts are commandments. It's true. Principles are divine truth given to us in Scripture. Pattern is God giving to us examples of the truth being lived out. Everyone who reads the New Testament or the Old Testament is convinced of this fact. God just does not give us cold facts. It, you know, if that's all we needed... What, what God would have done would have been to have given us the list of regulations. And all you would need to do is, is nail it up on the wall in the hall where you meet and say, here are the regulations and this is what we go by. As you see, God gives us his truth in living example. God gives us his truth in the lives and testimonies of people who have lived for God and have lived out these principles in their lives, both singularly and collectively as the people of God. And that's what I have in mind tonight. If I get to it, I trust I will. But here's the point now. And this is the most important thing I've said about this so far. How important is a pattern? Well, now, here's the point. When the principles and the precepts and the pattern all agree, they are of equal importance. Now remember that because that's a there are many things that we practice in a local assembly that we practice because of the pattern. Because we have a pattern to go by. 
Is that pattern authoritative? Yes, it is. And so a young believer might say tonight, well, would you make it a little clearer? What do you mean? What do you mean by a pattern? All right, here it is. The simple statement, this do in remembrance of me, regarding the remembrance of the Lord Jesus in the breaking of bread, this do in remembrance of me, that's a precept. Ah, I know, my dear brethren, and, and I, I, I hope you don't think when I say something like this that I'm sitting in a meeting critical of what my brethren say in prayer. The very opposite is true. I appreciate my brethren praying. But some of us make the statement about the dying request of the Lord Jesus. And strangely, the Lord Jesus never was dying, and he, he didn't make a request. Oh, you say, what do you mean he wasn't dying? The Lord Jesus wasn't dying. At the, when the work was finished, he yielded up his spirit voluntarily of his own will. Otherwise he never could have died at all. What about this business of a request then? It was not a request, dear brother. It was a precept. The Lord gave a command. This do in remembrance of me. It has absolute authority. But, uh, here now is a pattern. On the first day of the week, the disciples came together to break bread. Does that have authority? Yes. Why? It's a pattern. And the pattern agrees with the principles. And it agrees with the precepts. So a pattern can be very, very important. Now let me look at the patterns we have, we have read about tonight. We have read of a pattern of perfect righteousness. A perfect man who lived here for God. How, how could you say how could you say it's too much of the pattern and not enough of the person when the person himself is the pattern and his life is the pattern for you he left us an example he left us a pattern that ye should follow his steps what a pattern you cannot look at the Lord Jesus and not be moved and not be affected some have looked at him and turned away some have looked and been drawn with cords of love if I be lifted up from the earth he said I will draw all men unto me and we have been drawn to him each one who is saved here tonight has been drawn by the cords of love to Calvary And we have been drawn to his blessed person. And he has won our hearts. He has captivated us. And we have come to know him. And I know our love is feeble. At the very best. But oh, there is not a believer here tonight. Who does not love the Lord Jesus. We love him for the glorious worth. Which in himself we see. We love him for the shameful cross endured so patiently. Yes, he has won our hearts. And no wonder. What a, what a life. What a savior. Think of the gentleness of Christ. I have been writing a commentary on the Gospel of Luke. I'm a little embarrassed to tell you how long I've been working on it. Luke, by the way, is the largest book in the New Testament. It has less chapters than Matthew and Acts, but uh, 
It has the most verses. There's 1,143 verses. I'm writing a verse-by-verse commentary. And I've been laboring at it for two years. But oh, it has thrilled my heart. The gentle, perfect man, the man of swords, heaven's nobleman, walking amongst men, meekness and lowliness characterizing his every step. I have traced his footsteps through Galilee, looked at the blessed Savior, as he moved amongst sinful men in sinless perfection, impeccable, holy. You know that that word holy that is used in Hebrews seven and twenty six. It is not. It is not the usual word used for holy in the in the New Testament. It is not the normal word that is used for the holiness of God's throne, the holiness of God's character. It is rather a word that is used in this sense, the beauty of holiness. It is the thought of grace and perfection in a blessed man. It is, is, it is the thought of a holy love, a holy grace, holy mercy, holy compassion in a perfect man. And there is something in that, that that we need desperately. For in ourselves we find sin. And around us in the world we find failure of every kind. But oh, turn your eyes upon the Lord Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. There's a satisfaction, there's a delight in that. It's all that we need. You know, I, I believe that with all my heart. That the gospel and the Savior who is the heart of the gospel meets all our needs fully. And is fully satisfying because he meets every need. So it's a great delight to look at the pattern of that blessed one who is righteous, who is faithful, who was so thoroughly devoted to the will of God that he made it his daily need, who lived with delight. In the will of the Father. In studying this gospel, I've been impressed with something that, that has moved me deeply. Luke is the gospel of the man of swords. Luke is the gospel of the sympathizing Christ whose heart is wooed with compassion. It is the gospel of that gentle man who moved here amongst men aware of all that sin had done. Yet, although it is the gospel of the man of sorrows, it is the gospel of the joy of the Savior. Did you know that joy, rejoicing, are found more often in Luke's gospel than the other three combined? Why? Because if you had looked upon that face, you would have been looking upon the face of a man of sorrows. Look closer. Stamped with joy. Joy in doing the Father's will. Delight in fulfilling the purpose of God. He was a man of sorrows and he was filled with joy. That's delightful. I often think of the way he bore shame. 
I, I don't suppose that any of us here have ever really been the objects of utter contempt. Perhaps we have been scorned and mocked. Perhaps we have been abused and thought wrongly of. Perhaps we have suffered from the cruelty of others. Perhaps all that is so. Do we know anything about being treated with utter contempt? Contempt that makes us less than nothing. Our blessed Lord was treated by men with utter contempt. And he bore it with majesty and dignity. That's what's so thrilling about the person of Christ. When the thorns were on his brow and his face was covered with spittle and blood, and his back was torn with ribbons and plowed into, into the awful furrows of a plowed field. He stood there in majestic dignity. No wonder he left us a path. Oh, you say, I, I, I never could come up to that. I'm so far short of being like Christ. Yes. That's true of me. That's the path. That is the path. And if you look upon it, the Holy Spirit of God does a blessed work. He produces likeness, moral likeness to the Lord Jesus in us. I think we quoted that verse the other day, 2 Corinthians 3 and 18. The holding is in a glass. With open face, the holding is in a glass. The glory of the Lord. We are changed into the same image from glory to glory even as by the Lord, the Spirit. I would say that godliness is Christ-likeness. And that life, the pattern of that life was an utter delight for the heart of God. Did you know that Israel's high priest wore an inner garment that was patterned? The word that is used in the Old Testament is that it was damasked. And uh, if you came from the land that my forebears came from, that would be very familiar to you. Because in the linen mills, the linen was damasked. A pattern was made upon it. In the, in the looms, in the weaving, the pattern was woven into the linen. Beautiful patterns, floral patterns and so forth were put into the linen. My father was trained as a pattern maker for the linen. And to see some of that linen as it was patterned, it's a beautiful thing. Well, that's the closest we can come to that inner garment of the high priest. It had a pattern. It was white linen. Who designed the pattern? God did. God designed it. Who saw the pattern? God saw it. No man ever looked on it, as far as I know. It was never seen by the eye of man. Why a pattern then if nobody saw it? Because it was the pattern that delighted God. You ever think of the Lord Jesus like that? That life was patterned by God. That life of the perfect man. And he lived it here in perfection. And it delighted God. And God saw excellencies and beauties and glories in his Son far exceeding anything we'll ever understand. No man knoweth the Son. That ends there. You see, when it says, No man knoweth the Father, save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him, 
But then it goes on to say, No man knoweth the Son. Who knows him? Father knows him. Father knows him. That thrills me because like the dear man from Peterhead in Scotland, as you heard Mr. Maxwell talk about, he got up in a meeting at a, a North Sea fisherman and he said, the time will never come in eternity when God will come out wringing his hands and saying, I have no more to show you. There will always be more of the person of the Lord Jesus. It's a story that will never end. <laughs> what are you going to do there forever? Whenever anyone asks a question like that, what are you going to do for eternity? This is what I told him. I was at the University of Manitoba at Winnipeg a few years ago. And a man there who works under a grant of the Canadian government as a researcher, a scientist, uh, he told me that he had spent his life, literally his lifetime, his, his professional life, investigating the contents of a mud pond. That's his own language. He, he spoke of it that way. Uh, he said, I've spent my life investigating the contents of a mud pond. Now, it was a sphagnum bog and a few things like that, but that's all it was, just a mud pond. And he said, after having spent my life at it, he said, I have discovered that there is very much more that I don't know than I do know about the mud pond. And he said, there are greater wonders opening up to me all the time that I never dreamed of when I began this research. And I went away from that man with this thought in my mind, if a man can spend his lifetime investigating the contents of a mud pond, never come to the end of that. What will it be like when we see the Lord Jesus as he is? A story that will never end. Forgive me for quoting C.S. Lewis, won't you? He says, when we get to heaven, we will find that all we ever knew on earth of the Lord Jesus, all we had ever learned about his person and his work, was only the title page of a great volume. And in heaven we'll open the first page of the book and there's not a last one. And it'll go on forever. So don't be surprised that in the Lord Jesus are excellencies and glories that are inexhaustible, eternal in their value. What a pattern to follow now. Surely there's every reason that he should win our hearts and our devotion. But that pattern of the Lord Jesus is also displayed in an assembly. And the assemblies of the New Testament left us a pattern to follow. It was a positive pattern. I think all of you here know what a positive pattern is. Um, The man who built this hall, was here at the conference, and uh, I'm not sure if Vern uh, actually made the blueprints for this building himself, or if he had an architect do it, I'm not sure about that. I think he has ability uh, to draw the plans himself, but uh, when such plans are drawn, and, and uh, in my own very limited way, I have drawn the plans for a number of buildings. Those are positive plans. I think all of you would know that. 
In other words, you do not put into the plans all the things you don't do. If you did that, they would be endless. Talk about six or seven or eight or ten pages to a blueprint for a building. Why, you would have countless thousands of pages because most of it would be taken up with what you don't do to this building. But no, you don't have to put in what not to do. You don't have to write into the, the blueprint, do not put a stairwell in the middle of the auditorium. Because that's not in the blueprint. A blueprint is a positive pattern. It's a positive plan. And you follow the positive aspects of the plan. Now, young Christian, get hold of that. Well, that's what an assembly follows. When someone says to you, there's nothing in the New Testament against doing this, that has no valid force. For the simple reason that what we have is a positive pattern. In fact, that's one of the laws of interpretation of our New Testament. Could I give you some of the laws of interpretation? I've written this kind of thing, but uh, maybe it would help you a little bit if I tried to do that. The law of context is the first law of interpreting the Bible. That is That has greater force and greater power than, than other principles of, of interpretation. Greater than grammar? Oh yes, greater than grammar. The law of context is the very first law of interpreting our Bibles. There is a law related to the truth we're dealing with now that is very important, and that is the law of of uh, relevancy, I have called it, uh, or the law of all-sufficiency, if you will. Maybe that's a better way to say it. But what do I mean by the law of all-sufficiency? Well, you know that's the language of 2 Timothy 3 and 16. That, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. In other words, there's nothing lacking in it. It is all sufficient. And we know that. But when I, when I use the term, the, the law of relevance, this is what I mean. That when the New Testament was written, there were certain conditions. There are different conditions today. Therefore, what you have in the New Testament can't apply to our conditions. Nonsense. Did the Spirit of God not know every event that would take place in time? Did not the Word of God that came to us, did it not contain all the mind of God for all the people of God for all time? Yes. It's the faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. Don't say, dear Christian, Oh, of course, in New Testament days there were ideal circumstances and every true believer that was moral was gathered unto the name of the Lord Jesus in a local assembly. But today we have such a confusion in Christendom and we have Christians scattered everywhere. All of that is so. That does not change the value of the Word of God for us today. We have a positive pattern to follow. And what is written in this New Testament applies to us today exactly. And it suits us exactly. And nothing else is needed. And it is the poorest of all arguments to say, well, of course, things are different today than they were back in those early days. Surely they're different. But God knew they would be different. And that's why he gave us a positive pattern to follow. So the word of God is sufficient for our need. We need nothing else. You see, some would tell you, well, now, the Bible does not uh, say anything about uh, all these great organizations growing up in Christendom and Christians being mixed up in them. Does it not? 
I thought it did. I thought it described a, uh, a great tree. I, I thought it described a, a mass of gold that bloated and increased in size without increasing weight until it became a great thing. Let's describe these great systems. Oh, you say that there are true believers in them. Thank God. There are true believers in many, many places. But that has absolutely nothing to do with obeying the path. I can afford to leave that with God. And I can seek by example, by pattern, by life, by teaching, to cause believers who are in such systems to see the truth of coming out of them onto the name and person of the Lord Jesus. But I can afford to leave the thing with God. It is not for me a mere mortal, a mere servant. It is not for me to sit in judgment on everything there is in, in, in the so-called Christian world and say this is and this is not and this is closer and this is further. And You know, God never told me to do that at all. God just told me to follow His word. And He gave it to me as a positive pattern to follow. And I can afford to leave it for us alone. Just leave it with God. That's a very wise thing to do. I do not even like conversations that, that uh, get involved with uh, judging this company and that company and saying how accurate is this company and how close is this company to the Word of God. I've never heard that. I believe I can leave them with the Lord. I'm responsible for the assembly where I am. I'm answerable to the Lord for how I obey His Word here. May God help me to do it and follow the pattern as He has given. I'm not going to get very far, I can see that. But uh, the word that we have read tonight actually is the same word, even though it's different in each verse. In fact, this is one of those words of the New Testament. It's found 20 times in the New Testament, and, and it is translated by many, many different words. It is translated by figure, fashion, form, manner, pattern, example, end sample, type. In fact, there's, there's a very unusual use of it in John 20. In John 20... You remember what Thomas said? Unless I, except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails. Remember he said that? You know that expression, the print of the nails? That's this word. I was in Scotland, uh, when? Last year. And, uh, last January. A year ago, January. And, uh, a man took me and showed me something I never expected to see in my life. I said the other day that I'm learning all the time, and I'll tell you, I really learned a lesson. I had talked sometimes about the nails in the hands of the Lord Jesus and in his feet, and I said, I don't suppose they knew how to make nails as we would know them. I suppose it was a, a pointed, jagged piece of iron, and every piece would be a different shape, and, uh, and that's what I had in mind. Oh, I learned something. About two years ago in the city of Glasgow, near an ancient Roman wall, at a preserved historical site, the government had given position, uh, permission for a, a large office building to be built. And that office building was so close to the historical site, uh, the archaeological site, that uh, the government had experts there to see that none of the important things were disturbed. And as the as the big shovel began to bite into the earth, th- there was a very hard bed of clay that it struck. And thinking it was just an ordinary 
layer of clay in the soil, the shovel cut through it. Cut through into a room. Lying deep with clay on every side. What was in the room? Nails. Nails from the first century. Roman nails. Brought there for the construction of buildings and walls in that northern section of Britain. I saw those nails. I could hardly believe what I saw. They were approximately, there were three sizes. The smallest size was seven to eight inches. The largest size was 16 to 18 inches long. They were beautifully fashioned nails. The only thing is, they did not have heads on the head was formed by battering the end of them, blunting it, crushing it, flattening it, until it formed a head, so that you could not see two heads alike. Some of them were split, uh, some of them were not, some of them were almost round, some of them were entirely differently shaped, and you could see that each one was manufactured by hand, with a battered head on it. You know, for the first time in my life, I understood the primitive the nail went into his hand. The weight of his body came against the head of that nail. And it left its print. It left the shape of it in the hand of the Lord Jesus. That's why we read in Romans 6 and 17, ye have obeyed from the heart that mold of teaching into which you have been delivered. The word of God is a mold. It's a pattern. Every, every wife in the home, every cook, and you can be a man doing the cooking for that matter. You know how you use a jello mold. You know how you pour the liquid into the shape of the mold. And when it sets, it should at least come out in the shape of the mold. And uh, that's exactly the meaning of Romans 6 and 17. We were delivered into a mold. What is the mold? The Lord Jesus. What to be patterned like him likeness to Christ. Can I say something very simply and humbly to you? That is the greatest evidence of God's salvation in you and me. That there is something like Christ. That we are like the Lord Jesus. And every one of us would confess, young and old here tonight, how very feebly we are like the Lord Jesus. Let me close now. There's just five minutes on the clock at the back. I think you have two different times here. So I won't go by that clock over there. It's a bit faster. Um, let me let me tell you what we read about the pattern assembly. Actually, we did read about a pattern assembly. Uh, they were a pattern to wall around them. And from them had sounded out the word of the Lord, so they were a gospel assembly. Let me commend the Arlington Assembly. Because I've been in the work of the Lord for a long, large number of years. And I've always known this assembly to be a gospel assembly. Thank God. What a tragedy it is when we lose our heart in the gospel. And it isn't just a matter of sitting here in the gospel hall and waiting for people to come in. The assembly here for years has sought to go out after the people. With children's work, with Sunday school work with tent work, with tract work, with open air work, 
you've reached out with the gospel. Do not accept the charge that is laid against us by some who say these people just sit in the gospel hall and wait for people to come in. Not true, brethren. Not true. Thank God for every assembly that has gone out with the gospel. That's what they did in Thessalonica. They went out with the gospel. And God bless their, their efforts, their labors in the gospel. And God help us to ever maintain that gospel spirit. We believe with all our heart that even believers are greatly blessed by nightly gospel preaching. And you have seen it, and so have we, that, that the hearts of God's people get warmed when they hear the gospel preached. And I have found that after a few nights of gospel preaching, uh, people are coming to the door of the meeting and, and they maybe haven't told how they got saved for a long time and suddenly they're, they're telling you how they got saved. And even sometimes some of the elders do it and, and come and tell you how God awakened and saved. And what's happening? The hearts of the believers are getting warmed under the word of God. It, it has a wonderful effect upon us too. Those who know it best are hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. Could I say something to you very bluntly now? There are places that are moving away from gospel preaching. They're giving up their Sunday night gospel meeting, or whenever they have the gospel meeting, they're giving up any pretense of preaching the gospel. What they are really doing is is having discussion meetings in homes or in other places where they get together and gossip the gospel and talk about the gospel. Oh, you say, preacher, don't you believe in that? I believe that's initial contact. I believe that that's a most necessary part of the work of the Lord. That's the very groundwork to speak to our neighbors, to speak to our friends, those with whom we work or go to school with, to to share the lamb with them. Oh, that is so necessary. But listen, there's no substitute for preaching. Did you know that? There is no substitute for preaching. What we read there in 1 Thessalonians 1 was that these people heard the preached word. And in the New Testament, there is a word for speaking the gospel to my neighbor, to my friends. But again and again, there is the clarion note of the herald who stands to publicly declare the gospel as an evangelist. Now look, dear believer, no matter how sloppy we get in our thinking, we are not all evangelists. God has gifted men to be evangelists. And they declare the gospel publicly. And without it, we are not following God's method. You see, God does have a methodology. What is it then? After that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. You want a divine methodology? That's it. Declaration of the gospel, preaching it, publicly heralding it. And I think it's a tragedy. I've known people who have who have left assemblies as we know them, and they've gone to places where they have no gospel meetings. And these dear parents have I've seen them weep and say, How am I going to see my children saved? There's no gospel meetings. And a summer camp a young people's meeting where they gather around a table or something like that is no substitute for a preached word. I hope they'll all remember that. It's most important if we're going to follow the path. I'm not going to get any further with it tonight, and I might as well stop at this point, because I didn't even get to myself. Forgive me.
there are principles that we follow that are very clearly given to us by precept and given to us as a pattern. But nice thing about having a few nice meetings, what we don't say tonight, perhaps we can get to tomorrow. So, thank you for coming. May God bless his word to our hearts, shall we pray. Our Father, we look to thee now for thy word that it will be hidden deep in our hearts. When we think of the Lord Jesus and think of the pattern he left us, think of that lovely life. Think of the glory he brought to thee. Think, Lord, of all the world of desert round him, all his springs in God alone. Every heart save God's heart only, making discord with his own. And he was here, and he walked in harmony with thy will, and he delighted thee. O oh God, that we might be like him. We long to be like him. We long, Lord, day by day, to be more like his blessed person. Seems the more we know him, and all his ways explore, it only sets us longing to know him more and more. And remember the language of that dear devoted servant, that I might know him, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, that I might be made conformable unto his death. Lord, help us to be like him, and to live like him, and to show Christ to others, that glory may be brought to his blessed name. Bless, Lord, the assembly. Bless our testimony. Help us to live for God. Help us to manifest likeness to the pattern that is given to us in the New Testament as we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.